me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us, and we pray now uh, that as we dive into this deep uh, and rich theology from Paul, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would uh, be transformed by a better understanding of who you are and all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, obviously the coronavirus has seen us uh, seek to, to respond in such a way that uh, hopefully protects life. Uh, we've been uh, on a mission to, to, to stop people dying from this terrible virus. Uh, and of course, uh, when we th- think about death, our culture in general terms is actually not very good at it. We, we tend to ignore it because, uh, th- thankfully, uh, we have very long lives uh, these days and death is not something that knocks on our doors too often uh, as we go along our lives and perhaps it's not until we get uh, into our later years that really it's something we start to consider. But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why do people die? Why do people die? Now, it's an interesting question to Google. Uh, And uh, when I punched it into Google uh, this week, uh, the first article I got was from Psychology Today Australia. No offence to the psychologists in the room. Uh, But it said that uh, we don't really die, our cells just rearrange. Uh, and so uh, we sh- if we can just realise that we're just a clump of cells and that they're just going to rearrange at some point, this should somehow help us navigate death. And I thought to myself, remind me not to see that psychologist when I'm trying to process the hard stuff in life. Uh, the next article I went to was uh, Wikipedia, which didn't answer the question, why do people die? It just told me about death. And it defines death like this. Death is the permanent cessation of all biological functions that sustain a living organism. Phenomena which commonly bring about death include ageing, physiological or organ failure, uh, predation, poisoning, malnutrition, disease, suicide, homicide, asphyxia, drowning, severe burns, drug intoxication, starvation, dehydration, electrocution, apparently that's commonly a cause of death, intense heat, cold heat, radiation toxicity, warfare attacks such as bombings as well as explosions and accidents or major trauma resulting in fatal injury. People die because of those reasons, apparently, according to Wikipedia. It also helpfully tells you that the remains will decompose shortly after death. Uh, There you go. Death. The death of humans, in particular, has been commonly considered a sad and unpleasant thing uh, for many of us. Uh, uh, But that big question, why do people die, is a question that we're uh, always asking as, as a species, as a human race. And the Bible has an answer. The Bible tells us, and we see it here in Romans chapter 5, that we all die because of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. And what happens in the reading we have today from Romans chapter 5 is uh, we, ha- we have sort of Paul mapping out for us the mechanics of how, how it is that sin and death affect us all because of the one man Adam and how Jesus can be one man who saves us all from this predicament and bring us life and life eternal. So let's dive in and have a look. 
Paul, first of all, uh, talks about the problem of sin and death, verses 12 to 14. If you've got your Bibles open at home or here, have a look. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not changed, charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of one to come. <laughs> Paul says that uh, you should uh, have here uh, realised that sin and death entered the world through one man. And he doesn't mention who that man is at first, but we know that this is Adam from the context. Adam's disobedience because of his sin brought evil into our world. His sin brings death into our world. But what does it mean when Paul says that uh, death comes to all because all sin. So sin enters the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. What does Paul mean when he says that? This is a, a big kind of uh, theological issue. And we might consider it like this. Did Adam's immediate children, so Cain and Abel, did they die because of their sin or because of Adam's sin? And what about us a few thousand generations later? Is our death the result of our sin or Adam's sin? How is it that sin and death come to all? And that has been kind of answered historically in, in one of two ways. Either you go with this bloke called Pelagius or you go with this other guy called Augustine. Now, Pelagius basically said that we are all like Adam in that we all also disobey God and so our sin and our death is something that we kind of earn. We, 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 Adam is the father of us all in that he sets up the pattern that all of us inevitably follow. So that when we sin, we earn our own death. Augustine argues that what Paul means here is something much different. He says, actually, that it's in the sin of Adam that all, all humanity is somehow caught up in and guilty of and therefore all uh, deserving of death. And death comes to us all by our our participation in Adam's sin, him as the father of humanity. Our death inherited by our very human nature that we share with Adam, the first human. And it's interesting uh, that Pelagius, uh, by the year 431, was declared a heretic by the church. So uh, you can tell which way that, that, that we've historically decided Paul uh, uh, should be interpreted. The latter, the Augustinian view. And I think actually we can see that that's right because that's the argument that Paul makes in this part of the scripture. He, he, he makes the argument that we are all guilty of sin and de deserving of death, not primarily because of our own actions but because 
of who we are, human beings who participate somehow in the sin of Adam through his sin. Verses 13 and 14, Paul points out, tries to make the case, he says, that the law existed, uh, uh, that sin existed before the law because there was death, right? So some people in Paul's day might have argued that um, uh, that there could be no sin without the law. And Paul says, well, that can't be right because if people are dying, which they clearly were before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, then there must have been sin, even if they weren't aware of exactly what they were doing wrong because they didn't have the Ten Commandments to, to kind of guide their behaviour by. And sin leads to death. And so those people who died before the law, they died because of sin. But they couldn't really be guilty, Paul's kind of trying to argue here, because they didn't know what they were doing wrong. But they, they, they are still found guilty because they share in Adam's sin. That's kind of the logic of Paul's argument there in verses 13 and 14. And then throughout verses 15 to 19, about five times we see Paul showing us that Adam's sin or disobedience has brought about death and judgment and condemnation for all people. So verse 15, the many died by the trespasses or the sin of the one man. And so I think as we examine the words of scripture here, we can, we can say with the, the, the historical church that yes, Pelagius was wrong and Augustine was right. But of course, for our modern uh, ears, there's probably one more hurdle to jump. If we're going to accept this view, Paul's view, Augustine's view, that uh, humanity is guilty by association by being somehow participatory in Adam's sin, well, it begs the obvious question, doesn't it? I wonder if any of you can think about what it is. Is Adam real? That's a big question, isn't it, in our day and age? Is Adam a real person? And so I want to read to you uh, what uh, John Stott says about this uh, as he's reflecting on this passage. He says... It is fashionable nowadays to regard the biblical story of Adam and Eve as myth, whose truth is theological but not historical, rather than significant event, whose truth is both. Many people assume that evolution has disproved and discarded the Genesis story as having no basis in history. Since Adam is the Hebrew word for man, they consider that the author of Genesis was deliberately giving a mythical account of human origins, evil and death. We should certainly be open to the probability that there are symbolic elements in the Bible's first three chapters. The narrative itself warrants no dogmatism about the six days of creation, since its form and style suggest that it, that it is meant as literary art, not scientific description. As for the identity of the snake and the trees in the garden, since that old serpent and the tree of life reappear in the book of Revelation, where they are evidently symbolic, it seems likely that they are meant to be understood symbolically in Genesis as well. But the case with Adam and Eve is different, Stott says. Scripture clearly intends us to accept their historicity as the original human pair. 
For the biblical genealogies trace the human race back to Adam. Jesus himself taught that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and then instituted marriage. Paul told the Athenian philosophers that God had made from, made from made every nation from one man and in particular Paul's carefully constructed analogy between Adam and Christ which we're reading about here in verse chapter 5 depends for its validity on the equal historicity of both. Paul affirmed that Adam's disobedience led to condemnation for all as Christ's obedience led to justification for all. Moreover nothing in modern science contradicts this. Rather, the reverse. All human beings share the same anatomy, physiology and chemistry and the same genes. Although we belong to different so-called races, each of which has adjusted to its own physical environment, we nevertheless constitute a single species and people of different races can intermarry and interbreed. The homogeneity of the human species is best explained by positing our descent from a common ancestor. Genetic evidence indicates, writes Dr Christopher Stringer of London's Natural History Museum, that all living people are closely related and share a recent common ancestor. He goes on to express the view that this common ancestor probably lived in Africa, though this is not proved, and that from this ancestral group, all the living peoples of the world originated. And I thought I'd better stop reading you what John Stott said at this point. But he says, goes on to say uh, a little bit more uh, about Adam's historicity. And I thought it's just worth reflecting. What, like, this is a complex issue, trying to figure out uh, what, how you make sense of the opening chapters of Genesis. But it's pretty important uh, because in those chapters, we find uh, the basis for so much uh, Christian theology. Uh, but it's complicated stuff. And Genesis uh, 1 through 11 is a, a bit of a work in progress for me. I, I kind of go back and forth between uh, what I think about different aspects of it. But I think we can see for, from that quote that I read from John Stott just now uh, that, uh, that we probably do need to hold on to a historical atom Uh, Let me say, I'm in no hurry to hold on to a a historic seven-day creation, and I'm in no hurry to deny scientific truths about uh, evolution. I think we can hold on to those things and hold on to a historic atom, and uh, if you want, I can read you later on the full bit in uh, Stott's book uh, about this, uh, where he goes on to explain some of the reasons why that might be. But basically on the logic that Paul uses to explain the mechanism of salvation in Jesus Christ, I become convinced that we need to hold on to a historical Adam. Because Adam is the source of our dilemma, sin and death. And because we find ourselves guilty by association with our, with our, our, our first father so too we can find freedom by association in our new father, by our new birth in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to talk about this, the gift of grace that comes through Christ in, uh, as we're born again, moving from the born into death and in the death of Adam into being born into life and the life 
of Christ. He says, the gift, the gift of life in Christ, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul says the work of Christ is so much greater than the work of Adam. Adam's sin was great and had terrible and profound consequences for our world, but Christ's work is so much greater. Paul says here that actually not only do we find ourselves guilty by association, but we have our own guilt. We have the guilt of what's called original sin, but then we also have our own failings. And God brought judgment on the world after one sin, and yet after many, many more sins that you and I have contributed to the, the grand scale of injustice against God, he brought forgiveness and grace and mercy through sending his son Jesus into the world. And that, that's part of what Paul's saying here, makes it greater. Adam, the bringer of death. Christ, the bringer of life. Another great English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, look at yourself in Adam and though you had done nothing, you, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. This is how it is for uh, uh, all people. We, we find ourselves born into our identity with Adam and condemned, and yet through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, though we've done nothing to deserve it, declared righteous. What a wonderful thing that is. But a bit of a hard thing for us to get our heads around as Western individuals, because this is sort of saying that, 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 that it's not all about me, that I'm somehow actually caught up in the collective whole of the human race. So, Christ gives us the gift of grace, uh, the gift of a righteous life when we were dead in our sins. And now, he invites us to live no longer under the reign of sin and death, but instead the reign of grace, verses 18 to 21. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam's sin leads to condemnation, but Jesus' perfect gift leads to righteousness and justification. We need God's intervention in our lives. 
And God is able to bring salvation through one man who lived in perfect obedience to, the, to his will, Jesus. And though humanity has been on a many thousand year journey of rebellion against him, though sin has increased, grace has increased all the more. Even though we've been caught up in Adam's sin, even though we've fallen far short ourselves, God's grace reigns supreme. He overcomes through Jesus Christ. And he gives to each of us who humble ourselves forgiveness through faith in him. The gracious gift of salvation or righteousness or eternal life, this gift is the gift that reigns over us all who have faith in Jesus Christ. We do live under God's amazing grace, don't we? A grace that forgives sins through the cross. A grace that bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. A grace that satisfies our thirsty souls and fills our hungry hearts. A grace that sanctifies and shapes us into the image of Christ. A grace that brings dead men and women to life. And so the question I have for you today as we finish is will you accept God's gracious gift of life even though you're dead? Come to Jesus, for in him is eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and a true life lived for him where you will find your needs met and an eternal life full of greater joy than you can ever imagine. Music